Now, with the resurrection of Jesus came the undeniable truth um, that everything that Jesus said was in fact true, that God was doing something new in the world for the world, that Jesus did not come to complete something that was old, right? He didn't come to, to just fulfill the Old Testament and New Testament so we'd have a, a whole Bible. That's not why Jesus came. He didn't come to do something for just one group of people or for some people or for a people. He came to do something for everyone. And last week, as we began this series together, we talked about the fact that the Apostle Peter, right in the very beginning of his letter to us, he, he wants us to make sure that we understand that this message of Jesus, that this is, is, is in fact good news for, for everybody. And so Peter, he starts off his account by saying this. He says, um, this is my account. This is the beginning. This is the beginning of the good news, right? And if you don't think that the message of Jesus is good news, right? If you think that uh, it's all about me and what I do or, or what I know or what I don't know or if it's just, it's just about someplace that I go after I die, right? Peter would say to you, um, maybe you don't actually know the whole story. Maybe you don't know the, the big picture because, because this story about Jesus, Peter would say, it is absolutely good news for everyone. It's good news because this story is all about, it's all about the Messiah, the coming of the Son of God into our, our world. Now, we talked about this a little bit last week, um, but again, you can't overemphasize how significant this really is because Peter writes these words, right? He writes um, these words 30 years after that first Easter, 30 years after Jesus is crucified, 30-something years after the crucifixion, Peter is still convinced that his friend is the actual living and breathing Son of God, right? As followers of Jesus, we do not believe that Jesus is the Son of God because the Bible tells us so, right? It's actually uh, much better than that. We believe that Jesus is the Son of God um, because these followers of Jesus, they documented what they saw, they witnessed it, they documented it, and they tell us about it, right? In, in fact, it's the very same th thing as this. Um, the, the, the truth is, right, you and I, we don't believe in in gravity, right, because the Encyclopedia Britannica tells us so, or Google tells us so, or Wikipedia tells us so, right? We believe in gravity because Isaac Newton, he saw it, he documented it, he wrote about it, and he observed it, right? In the same way, we don't believe Jesus is the Son of God simply because the Bible tells us so. No, we believe it because Peter saw it, and he documented it, and he observed it, and he wrote about it. But not only Peter, also John, and also Luke, and Matthew, and James, and Jude, and Paul, and so many others, right? So many others, they observed Jesus, they saw Jesus, they wrote about Jesus, and they documented everything he did and everything he taught. Most importantly, they documented his resurrection, because if there had not ever been a resurrection, we would never have a Bible, right? The Bible is simply a collection, a specific collection of ancient books, 66 different books written by 40 different authors in three different languages over a period of 1,600 years, all telling one remarkable story, the story of the Son of God living and coming into our world. And Peter tells us, right, 30 years, Peter picks up the story 30 years after the resurrection, which again is amazing because think about how much things change. Think about how your perception changes over 30 years, right? 30 years ago, the whole world thought Apple computer was a joke, that it was a failure, Right, 30 years after the resurrection, Peter is still convinced, even though he's in jail, even though he is awaiting his own execution, 
30 years after the crucifixion and the resurrection, Peter is still convinced that Jesus is the living, breathing Son of God and his message, it is good news for everyone. And Peter tells us, he says, basically everywhere Jesus went, he really just had kind of one message. And everything he said kind of fit into this one general theme, this one general message. And he would go to all these different places and just simply say the time had come. Right? The time had come. The, the waiting is over. Something has been missing in this world, and what's been missing is now here. And everything that came before, everything in the Jewish world and everything in the non-Jewish world, all of it, all of it was simply preparation for what it is that God has now done in this world. That God was doing something new in the world for the world. That he was preparing a new kingdom. That he was bringing a new covenant and a new temple. Something new in the world for the world through Jesus. The time has come. God is near. The kingdom of God, right, which we're talking about all throughout the course of the series. Probably the easiest way to think about this is God's kingship. Right? God's rule. God's authority. The kingdom is near because the king is in town. And so Jesus said, Jesus said, the appropriate response for us of this good news is to repent and believe. And again, we talked about this last week. When we hear this word repent in this context, Jesus is saying, I just want you to come towards me. You don't have to run away from me. You don't have to be scared of me. No, come towards me because this really is, it is good news for everyone. Jesus is introducing a brand new way of living Right? Not simply a new way of dying. He's saying, no, this is a brand new way of living. It's a new way of relating. It's a new way of interacting with each other. It's a new way of understanding who your Heavenly Father really is, the way that God sees you, the way that God actually sees our world. And so Peter and Matthew and Luke and John and all the New Testament authors, they document for us this new way of living that Jesus brought into this world, this, this new kind of life that only lives, only loves, only gives only serves, is only generous. And they show us that the kingdom has come because the king is in town. And Peter would say, let me tell you about that first event, that thing that clued us in for the very first time that this whole thing that Jesus had brought was so upside down, it was so different than everything else we had experienced in this world. Let me tell you when this first became obvious to all of us. Because Matthew and Mark and Luke, they would all write about this same event. That Jesus was actually led by the Spirit into the desert to be tempted by the devil. Now, some versions actually say, some English versions say um, the slanderer or, or the accuser. In the Greek, it's actually the word um, diabolos, right, which is where we get our, our word diabolical from. And this is a very interesting, maybe this, is, this might be new for some of you, this might be a repeat for some of you, but this is actually a very, very interesting event in the life of Jesus, and it gets surprisingly little attention in our world today. But if you grew up in church, right, maybe you're sitting there and you're thinking to yourself, okay, I, I know this one, right, I know this one, I kind of know how this goes. And maybe if you didn't grow up in church, you're sitting there and you're thinking to yourself, okay, wait a minute, like, seriously, time out, Joe, really? Like, you expect me to believe in a literal, physical, like a, like, a, like a devil, like, you know, horns and a pitchfork? Really? You, you expect me to believe that? And so no matter where you are when you hear this opening word, for this opening statement, these opening um, words from Matthew, I just want you to kind of pause for a second because I want all of us to ask a simple question. 
Right? I want us to ask this very simple. In fact, this, this is the, the first of two questions I'm going to ask you today. But why is this actually in here? I mean, as strange as this account is and as odd as it is and, and, and perhaps as many questions that it, it leaves us with that we, that we want details to, See, anytime you, you read something, um, you should always ask yourself the question, okay, why is the author telling me that? And this question is particularly important when it comes to ancient literature um, because there really wasn't very much ancient literature. And the ancient literature that there was was extremely expensive and extremely time-consuming to produce. And so why in the world would three out of the four gospel writers take the time to tell us about this one particular odd and strange uh, event? What is it that they wanted us to know? What was so crucial to, for us to understand that they would take the time to actually document all this? And see, the answer is that this event is not about learning how to overcome temptation, right? even though there are plenty of, of practical takeaways that we could, we could look into, into that subject, and, and we might do that some other time. But rather... The reason that we actually are, are told about this, the reason these authors include this, is because the, the meaning behind this event, the significance of this event, is actually much, much larger than that. In fact, it's actually central to this whole idea of God doing something new in the world, for the world, through Jesus. Because the truth is, Jesus was actually tempted Jesus was tempted to opt for the ways of the old kingdom the very same way that we are. Matthew continues in this account and he tells us that after 40 days, after fasting for 40 days and for 40 nights, that Jesus was hungry. And again, we read that and we might think, okay, this is probably like the most obvious statement in the entire New Testament, right? But again, why did they include it? Because Matthew and Mark, Matthew and Peter and Luke and John, they all want us to understand that, that Jesus was in fact human that he wasn't a spirit, particularly after the resurrection. They want us to know he's a real, physical human being, a living, breathing human being. He wasn't an apparition. He wasn't some kind of a ghost. That Jesus fasted for 40 days and 40 nights, and he was hungry, and he was weak, and he was vulnerable. It's as if Jesus is saying to the, to the devil at this point, um, okay, give me your best shot. Like, bring it on. I want to show you how serious I really am about establishing something new, something new in the world for the world. And so Matthew continues and he tells us that the tempter, and he actually uses a different word here. It's in the Greek, it's the word um, parazo, which means the, the instigator or the interrogator, the, the poker, the, the prodder, the one who's going to, to try to get out of Jesus something that nobody else has been able to get out of Jesus. The tempter, Matthew says, came to Jesus and said, okay, if you are, if you really are the Son of God, then I want you to tell these stones to become bread. In other words, Jesus, just speak it. Just say it. And if you really are who you claim to be, th then it'll be done for you. Because, I mean, after all, remember God, he spoke the whole universe into being. And if you really are the son of God, then Jesus, certainly you can manage to speak some bread into being. And besides, Jesus, come on. You're entitled to this. right? You're the king. You're the one with all the power. Jesus, come on, you're the Messiah. Right? This is what you're entitled to. Other kings, if they had the power that you have, Jesus, they would do this in a heartbeat. 
And Jesus, interestingly enough, he responds in this moment. And see, we don't think about this, but Jesus actually responds um, under the old covenant. He responds as someone who is under the old covenant, the covenant that existed between God and the single nation, the nation of Israel. Because even though Jesus had come to establish a new covenant, he came to serve as the hinge. He came to serve as the door from one covenant into another. We're going to talk about this more next week. And so Jesus actually leans into the old as he is working to establish the new. And so Jesus responds and he says, it is written. It is written that man shall not live on bread alone. He responds um, from something out of Deuteronomy chapter 8 when the nation of Israel is traveling to the promised land and, and they're going through a desert and there's no food and everyone is hungry. And, and so God actually feeds these people. He feeds the nation of Israel while they're in the desert for 40 years. Every single day he provides them food to eat. And so he's teaching his people daily dependence, daily dependence, daily dependence. I want you to count on me and trust me every single day for what you need. And then Jesus continues and he responds, man shall not live on bread alone, but on every single word that comes from the mouth of God. In other words, he says, listen, you're right, I am the son of God. But even though I am the son of God, even though I've been sent into this world to do something new in the world for the world, I will not act on my own, Jesus is saying. I will not behave, don't miss this, as someone who is not under authority. Because to do so, to do so would be so kingdoms of this world. And so then the devil, Matthew tells us, took Jesus and he brought Jesus to the highest point of the holy city, which is Jerusalem, and had him stand on the high point of the temple. Now, when you were a kid, like when I was a kid and I heard this story, the picture in my mind was always like Jesus, you know, like balancing with the devil on some kind of high spire, right? Or, or maybe walking this, this rope or this, this ledge um, on some steep building someplace. But that's actually not the case. This, in fact, is a reference um, to the southeast corner of the temple area, an area that was known as Solomon's Colonnade. It was overlooking the Kidron Valley, which is hundreds and hundreds of feet below this. And so the tempter is saying to Jesus, okay, Jesus, just, just like throw yourself off. Right? Just throw yourself off. I mean, that would be spectacular. Jesus, that would be amazing. Right? Because everybody is always watching the temple. And, and yeah, Jesus, I know that some people saw you down by the Jordan River with that other guy, that crazy guy, that Baptist guy, whatever his name was, John or something. But listen, Jesus, everybody would see this. Right? It would be so amazing. I mean, just imagine you throw yourself off and then you pick yourself off the ground and you dust yourself off. And besides, Jesus, remember, it's also written. And then the tempter actually quotes Psalm 91 back to Jesus and he says, he, meaning God, God will command his angels concerning you. So you don't have anything to worry about, Jesus. He's, he's just going to catch you as you're falling. He will make sure that you, don't, that you don't even strike your foot against a stone, right? You'll be fine. In other words, the tempter taunts Jesus in this moment. And he says things to Jesus like, okay, doesn't God promise to take care of you? I mean, come on, Jesus, don't you have faith in God? I mean, Jesus, come on, don't you believe in him? You just said every word that comes from the mouth of God. Surely, Jesus, I mean, you have among all people. I mean, surely you can trust that your heavenly father is going to take care 
of you? And see, the truth is, in this moment, the tempter is tempting Jesus to do what every single one of us are so tempted to do so many times in our life when we're tempted to try to use God or to presume on God. In fact, unfortunately, many times this is the modern version of faith, the faith that some of you maybe were brought up in, the faith that perhaps some of you left, the faith that perhaps some of you should leave. The faith that is the reason why you haven't, ha- haven't been in church for a long time. The faith that just simply says, listen, if you believe, you'll receive. If you just believe enough, if you can just quote the right verses, if you can just do the right things, then God has to come through for you. And so Jesus answers the tempter and he says to him, he says, it is also written. It is also written, do not put the Lord your God to the test. And again, Jesus quotes Moses as the people of the nation of Israel are going through the desert and they tell Moses, God has to do this for us. I mean, after all, we're his chosen people. He has no choice. He has to do this and provide for us this way every single day that he can never let anything bad happen to us. And Moses says, listen, you don't understand You are correct. You are, in fact, God's chosen people. But God does not have to do anything. And you do not, Moses would say. You do not and you cannot presume on God. In fact, the point for us is simply this, and then we'll move on. If you are a follower of Jesus, right, this is going to be, this might be disturbing, actually. If you are a follower of Jesus and you're looking for that formula, you're looking for those right things to do, if, and you, you've come to the conclusion that if I say these things or if I do these things consistently, if I memorize these verses, um, then God has to do something for me. In that moment, you are no longer following Jesus. In that moment, you're actually practicing magic. You're actually participating in that superstitious version, uh, version of religion that Jesus came to replace for everyone. For all of us, not simply for a nation, but for all people. And see, listen, this does not mean that Jesus is not capable. It does not mean that God is not able to heal. After the last service, I had a woman come down and talk to me, a woman I've known for 25 years, a month ago was diagnosed with papillary cancer. And she came to tell me today that she just got back from Beaumont Hospital and there is no cancer. It is gone. No surgery, no anything. The doctors are literally amazed. But God, did, and the first thing out of her mouth, God did not have to heal me. God did not owe me anything. God does, we, God does not owe us anything. He's already given us his son. He's already given us the forgiveness of sin. Faith is trusting in God. It's trusting in God even when things don't go the way we want them to. And miracles are miracles because they don't happen every day. And Jesus would say, and Moses would say, you don't presume on and you don't use your heavenly father. He can, he is able, but you don't command him. That's not how it works. You don't try to manipulate God. God is not some, this is why Jesus would say, God is not some king up in heaven with his arms crossed waiting for you to bring enough gifts or enough sacrifice or enough good deeds. 
He's not looking for you to try to earn something or do something to get his goodwill or his favor or his love. Jesus says, that's not what your heavenly father is like. He says, you want to know what God is like? He's like a heavenly father who can't wait to talk to you. Can't wait to see you. That when you're in the midst of whatever you're struggling with, he just wants you to run into his arms. You don't have to bribe him. You don't have to manipulate him, Jesus would say. You just got to ask. You just got to ask him. Now, if you know this event, then you're kind of like, okay, two down, one left to go, right? But see, this is where I just want to pause again for a moment, and I want us to ask um, and answer this next question. Why do powerful people, why are powerful people so inclined to lose it? I'm sure you've noticed this in our world. Why is it that, that people, um, that powerful people, they seem to always lose it morally, right? Lose it ethically, even lose it financially. I mean, think about it for a second. You would think, right? At least I would think. I, I would think that with, a more pow- with more power, with more autonomy, with more freedom, right, that you would actually become a better person. Because I think, okay, if I, had, if I had more control, if I had less people demanding things from me, if I had more autonomy to do whatever I wanted, whenever I wanted, I mean, I would just be such a great person. Right? Isn't that, isn't that kind of what we think? I mean, doesn't that make sense? So then why is it? Why is it that the inclination, right, when we finally do have the power, when I finally do have the autonomy, when I finally do have the influence or the wealth, why is the inclination to say, okay, now that I have all of this, I'm going to use it for my benefit? I mean, what is that? Similar question. Where does bullying come from? I mean, have you ever stopped to think about this? Like, I'm more powerful than you, I'm bigger than you, and because I have more power, I'm going to control you. I'm going to decide what, what opportunities you get at work. I'm going to decide what opportunities you get in your career. Because I have more control over you, I'm going to decide where you spend your time and where you, I mean, what is that? Where, where does that come from? Where does greed come from? Elitism, arrogance. What is all of that? Because again, you, you think, right? You think like I think. I mean, man, if I ever had that much power, if I ever had that much wealth, I mean, if I ever had that much influence, I mean, I would just be the best person. So why is it that the natural inclination is not those things? Why is it that more does not make us better time after time after time. What is that? Why is it that there are just so few stories of extraordinarily rich, extraordinarily powerful people in our world that actually end well? Have you noticed that? Why is that not the case 95, 98% of the time? Now, Here's one of the things that is absolutely amazing about Jesus. 
Right? In fact, if you, if you stop following Jesus, if you don't believe Jesus is the Son of God, if you've got questions about who Jesus really is, um, this should actually make you take a, a second look. Right? Throughout Jesus' ministry, throughout the course of his life, Jesus taught and he modeled something. Right? He taught something and he modeled something that has actually become very, very familiar and common to us. But in Jesus' day and in Jesus' age, it was completely brand new. Nobody did this in the first century. It was so upside down. But Jesus taught and he modeled that power was primarily not for the benefit of the powerful. Nobody ever heard such a thing before Jesus. It's like, Jesus, come on, if you're trying to get a movement going, you're trying to change the status quo, Jesus, that's not how it works. That's, that's upside down, Jesus. That, that's not how you get anything done. Jesus taught that wealth was not primarily for the benefit of the wealthy. Instead, he taught that wealth was actually a stewardship, that wealth, Jesus would say, like power, are in fact tests, that they're all tests. Because Jesus would say, all of this actually belongs to my heavenly Father, and, and, and it's really all just a test to see how well we will do with it. And Jesus would go on to say that, that we're ultimately going to be judged, each of us, all of us. We're going to be judged not on how we use these things on ourselves, but on whether or not um, we actually become more generous when we give these things. And that test will determine if we actually get more later. And Jesus would say that very few people, very few people actually pass the wealth or the power test. And see, when you hear that, you probably think the same thing that I do, right? Which is like, okay, where do I sign up to take this test? Because I would like to try and take the test because I'm pretty convinced that I could actually pass this test. And even if I can't pass it, I really want to try and pass it. And see, the truth is, if you're sitting here right now, if you're watching right now, if you're listening right now, you're already taking, we are already taking these tests. This is why Jesus, throughout his ministry, would ask people this question. He'd always say to them, okay, what's in your hand? Like, what is in your hand? Who's that for? Who's it for? Is it for you? What's in your hand right now? Well, Jesus, it's for me. I mean, I earned it, and so I deserve it. And repeatedly, Jesus would say that that's so kingdoms of this world. That's the way the world has always worked. I have come into this world to establish a brand new kingdom, an upside-down kingdom, a kingdom where power is not primarily for the benefit of the powerful, a kingdom where wealth is not primarily for the benefit of the wealthy, a kingdom where influence, influence is not to be used to primarily benefit the influential. And see, all throughout his ministry, don't miss this, Jesus would in fact be tempted to opt, not just in this moment, all throughout his ministry, Jesus would be tempted to opt for the old ways, for the kingdom of this world ways, to just take what was rightfully his. And what happens next in this event in the life of Jesus is, in fact, the point of the entire event, of this entire interaction, because Matthew tells us that, again, once again, the devil actually took Jesus to a very high mountain, and he showed Jesus all the kingdoms of the world. He showed them, he showed Jesus all of their 
splendor. Right? It's as if um, the, the devil is saying to Jesus, okay, Jesus, feast your eyes on all of this. Because listen, I understand this is why you've come. Right? This is why you're here, isn't it, Jesus? All of this, this is why you're here. Isn't this what you want? Jesus, all you have to do if you want it, all of this I will give you, he said. I, I will give you all of it. I know this is what you're after. I will give you all of it. All you have to do is just bow down and worship me. All you have to do, Jesus, is recognize that this is actually mine to give you. Not not forever. Not for your whole life. No, I just want a moment. I just want one moment, Jesus, where you recognize that it's mine to give. Jesus, I want you to worship what will benefit you. That's all I'm asking. Just worship what will ultimately benefit you. I mean, after all, it's yours anyway. Isn't this what you're entitled to, Jesus? Isn't this why you've come? I mean, who refuses what they're entitled to? Who refuses what belongs to them? Jesus, come on. Who does that? great people. The people you admire. The people you actually have the most respect for. The people that you aspire to be like someday. See, don't miss this. Jesus did not come into this world to barter for a kingdom. Jesus came into this world to establish a kingdom in the hearts of men and women, a kingdom like no other, a kingdom that had never been seen before, a kingdom that was completely upside down, a kingdom where the subjects would not be at the whim of some selfish ruler, a kingdom where the subjects would not be required to sacrifice their lives for the king, a kingdom where the king would sacrifice his life for the subjects. The world had never seen such a thing. Matthew tells us that Jesus, Jesus responds in this moment and he says, away from me, Satan, for it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Luke actually picks up the story at this point and tells us that at this point that the tempter that he actually left Jesus. He, he left and he went away until an opportune time. In other words, this was just round one. The tempter was saying, listen, I'm always going to be here. I'm always going to be in the background. I'm always going to be a part of this world. I will always be working to convince you to opt for the ways of the kingdom of this world. And Luke goes on and he tells us that after this, After this moment, Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit. And news about him, it spread all through the countryside. And then, I love this. And then, maybe to just my speculation, to just taunt the devil. Instead of turning bread, stones into bread for himself, Jesus goes to a wedding And he turns water into wine, not to benefit himself, but for 
the guests. It was so completely upside down. And see, this is why. This is why Jesus, even though he would teach this, even though he would model this, even though he would spend so much time trying to explain this to his disciples and to us as followers, it's why they would always respond to Jesus and say, okay, Jesus, those are great sermons. Yeah, those are great tricks. It's just, but listen, we know how authority works. There's a top guy. There's a bottom guy. The guy on the top tells the guy on the bottom what to do. We want to be the guy on the top, Jesus. That's, I mean, is that such a big deal to ask? We've seen it all of our lives. This is how it just works. This is how the kingdoms of this world work. It's why even at the very end of Jesus' life, they still could not wrap their minds around the fact that Jesus came to establish something new, something new in the world for the world, a new way of thinking, a new way of living, a new way of relating to each other, a new way of experiencing our relationship with our Heavenly Father. And so Jesus sits them all down and he says to them, listen, guys, even the Son of Man, right, even the Son of Man, he did not come into this world to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And do you realize what Jesus valued over the kingdoms of this world? I mean, he was offered them. Do you know what he valued over those? You. He valued you. He valued you because you are a part of the many that Jesus ransomed his life to save. And again, we know this, right? We know this. Regardless of how much money you have, regardless of how much power or authority or influence we all have, right? we don't have the power to overcome the consequence of sin in our life, do we? I mean, there is no amount of money that will get you forgiveness with someone you love, is there? I mean, there is no amount of power that will get you forgiven by someone that you love dearly, is there? I mean, when we actually just stop and think about it for a moment, I mean, the the, the kingdoms of this world, the values of this world, they don't even intersect in any kind of a meaningful way with the things that are, are most important to the human heart and the human soul. And yet every single day, I'm tempted just like you are, just like we all are. We're all tempted every single day of our lives to opt for the kingdom of this world because it's what we know, it's what we see, it's what we've grown up in, it's just what we're used to. And see, this is why Jesus said, this is why I've come. This is why I've come. I have come so that you may have life. And when it's all about you, The truth is, Jesus would say, it's actually not much of a life. In fact, Jesus would say it this way. He would ask this question. We'll we'll close with this. He would just often ask this question. He would say, okay, what good is it? Like, what what good is it? I mean, what good good is it if if you gain the whole world, Jesus would say? What good will that do you? You come to the end of life, Jesus would say, and you become the most powerful, the most influential. You're the most rich. Ultimately, what good is that? What will you gain if you have the whole world, but you lose? You, you lose your, your very self. You forfeit your very self. What good would that be, Jesus would say? Because again, you know this. 
right? You, you knew this long before I said it. The people who have the biggest lives, the people that you look up to the most, the people that you aspire to be like, the people who have made the biggest difference, they are the most selfless, aren't they? And see, Jesus said, I have come to establish a kingdom that is all about this. A kingdom. A kingdom where power would actually be used to benefit the powerless. A kingdom where wealth would be used to benefit those who are in need. A kingdom where influence, influence would be leveraged to benefit those who have no voice. A kingdom that is so very, very upside down from everything we know. And yet exactly, exactly what every single one of us long for, what we hope for, and what we pray for every day. An upside-down kingdom with an upside-down king. Jesus, Jesus, we are so grateful that you did not come into this world to barter. You didn't come into this world to trade. Jesus, you didn't come to negotiate. You came to establish. You came and you built. You created a brand new kingdom. A kingdom unlike anything that we've ever experienced. A kingdom that is unlike anything that exists apart from you, Jesus. And Jesus, you invited all of us into it. You invited all of us to be a part of the, your kingdom, this, this new kingdom. This kingdom that is completely unlike everything else in our world. And Jesus, we know that none of us, none of us have the power to reverse the consequence of sin in our life. None of us have the power to reverse um, the, the brokenness of sin in our life. Jesus, only you can do that. Only you have promised to do that. And so we ask that you would just hear us in these next few moments as we personally and silently, as we confess that sin, our sin to you, as we ask you, to come into our life and to create a brand new kingdom and to give to us the new life that you promise comes in your kingdom. Jesus, hear us as we pray to you.
Jesus, the good news, the gospel, the good news of your kingdom is that you did not establish your kingdom on anything that we did. You didn't establish your kingdom on, on anything that we would promise to do. Jesus, you established your kingdom in your body and through your blood. And then you proved it. You authenticated it. When you defeated death and the grave, when you came out of that tomb on Easter Sunday and you announced that this kingdom, in your blood and through your broken body, your resurrected body, this kingdom is open to everyone. It is open to all people. It has been given to us by you. And Jesus, it cost us nothing and it cost you everything. And you gave it to us. And so the good news of your kingdom, the good news of your gospel is that our sin, the thing that separates us from you and from each other, that sin is forgiven. You have defeated it. And you have promised to continue to bring your work and your love and even your very self into our worlds, into our bodies every single day. Jesus, that our sin, it is truly forgiven by you and in your name. Amen. It was on the night that Jesus was betrayed that he took bread. When he had given thanks, he gave it to his disciples and he said, Take and eat all of you. This is my body. After supper, he took the cup of wine and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them and he said, Take and drink all of you. This cup is the new covenant in my blood. It's been shed for you for the forgiveness of your sin. And whenever you do this, whenever you do this, you do this in remembrance of me and what it is that I have done for you. And so take and eat the body of your Lord and your Savior, Jesus Christ. And take and drink this cup, his blood, which has been shed for you on your behalf for your sin. And now we celebrate. We celebrate the promise that wherever Jesus is present, his forgiveness and his kingdom reigns. And he is here with you, and his forgiveness, it goes with you today and always.